the Askell Leadership Podcast. Uh, my name is Robin Alexander. I'm uh, a fellow of Wolfson College at Cambridge University and I'm a retired professor of education. I've worked in schools and colleges in Birkenhead, Hertfordshire, Manchester. I've held senior positions at the University of Leeds, Warwick, York and Cambridge and visiting positions in Australia, Hong Kong and Singapore. I've also worked on development education with uh, DFID, now defunct, and the European Commission in India and Bangladesh. Um, and what I think is relevant for the purposes of discussion, which deals partly with one of my new books called um, Education in Spite of Policy, is that I've seen policy from the inside as well as the outside. I'm not merely an armchair critic. So I've been a member of uh, Quango's Council for Accreditation of Teacher Education, the QCA, both now defunct. I was a member of the government's so-called Three Wise Men Inquiry into primary education and have served on various uh, government advisory groups and advisory bodies and had a lot of dealings with ministers and officials over the years. And this has given me uh, some insights into uh, how things work, as well as those I've gained from uh, a uh, a more detached view as a as a researcher and and, and analyst of the policy process. Uh, from all this, um, whether I've been working in on in primary education, uh, on on uh, dialogic teaching, uh, comparative education, international comparisons, the curriculum, uh, I've become very preoccupied with the sometimes very fraught relationship between policy, practice and evidence. And certainly, as far as the relationship between evidence and policy goes, that is a very tricky relationship indeed. And policymakers have a knack of, of disregarding all but the evidence that suits their political agenda. But more on that perhaps later. And this is uh, an important opportunity, Robin, it seems to me, to talk about the essence of primary education, because it feels as if we've got a government with a white paper which thinks it's being ambitious by talking about literacy and numeracy targets of 90%. I think some parents might legitimately say, is that really ambitious? But the risk it runs is of narrowing the primary curriculum so that we, we get a sense that literacy and numeracy are improved by doing more literacy and numeracy. So let's, let's go back, if we could, first of all, to an extraordinary review of primary education you led uh, some years back. And um, would you mind just talking a, a little bit about that work? Yes, the, the Cambridge Primary Review, um, we originally called it the Primary Review, but added the Cambridge after the government actually tried to confuse people by calling the Rose Review the Primary Review, but that's another issue. Um, that uh, was initiated by me in consultation with all kinds of people back in 2006. It ran for four years uh, and produced um, over 30 interim reports and then a massive final report and a companion research volume. And then in 2012, after two years of dissemination, it was followed by the Cambridge Primary Review Trust, which built on and expanded the work. So the entire uh, programme the Cambridge Primary Review, Cambridge Primary Review Trust ran from 2006 to 2017. So it was a, 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 a major piece of work, a major chunk of my life, in fact. Um, and it produced an enormous amount of evidence. And 
We consulted all kinds of people, the uh, professional associations, obviously, but subject associations, faith groups, um, the uh, local authorities, parents, teachers, and children, whom we spoke to in large numbers. Uh, you know, all the stakeholders use that obvious word that, that one could uh, want to identify, as well as uh, trawling um, national and international evidence on are 10 broad themes, which really cover pretty well every aspect of primary education. And we asked two fundamental questions. What is the condition of primary education today? And how ought it to look in the future? So we concentrated on um, the, the, the current state of primary education and future possibilities and imperatives. Um, and uh, the uh, the, the new book that uh, uh, prom has prompted this this podcast, Education in Spite of Policy, the first part of that book, uh, talks about the review and lessons to be learned from it. And what initiated that review? Was it because there was a feeling that, you know, from looking back to, say, Plowden, for example, there had been some lack of impetus around primary? Had primary lost its way? Or was this uh, a, a government wanting to genuinely find out what are the best features of primary and how can we improve it by looking internationally? I mean, well, what, why, why did it begin? Well, the impetus uh, was really the sense that uh, primary had come out of the cold in policy terms. Um, if you remember... Uh, in um, uh, the uh, late 1990s, 1997, 98, the Labour government introduced um, national literacy and numeracy strategies and uh, made much of the need to raise standards in those two areas. Uh, and primary schools were subject of an enormous um, wave of, of policy initiatives and documents of one kind or another. Um, to the extent that, that heads were absolutely reeling uh, un, un, under the weight of this and the, and, the, and the speed with which one initiative was followed by another, even before the first one hadn't been implemented or, or had, been, hadn't be, had been implemented or even de de evaluated. Uh, and we really felt the time had come to take stock in the way that Plowden had taken stock in 1967 of English primary education. Um, in, in the broadest possible terms, but also to look at uh, the impact of and the trajectory of all these initiatives that were being rained down on, on, on schools. And uh, uh, although the review was my idea, uh, the group of us who were concerned with putting it together did take the precaution of consulting a lot of people before deciding to go ahead with it uh, and indeed, our sponsors, Esme Fairbairn Foundation, uh, did likewise. So we talked to politicians, we talked to government, we talked to, op to opposition, we talked to Ofsted, we talked to um, the QCA, as it then was. Uh, and we talked, of course, to teachers and heads and professional associations and others. And there was a, a general agreement that a review of this kind, an independent evidence-led review of this kind, was definitely needed. So on that basis, we proceeded. And in, in fact, at the beginning, at the outset, we had government support. The then Secretary of State, Alan Johnson, um, when we launched, sent me a personal message wishing us well and um, um, saying that the government would give whatever support it could to this review. So, so we had a fair win to begin with. It was only after we started publishing uh, our first um, 
uh, uh, interim reports and the press got hold of them and made hay with them uh, and, and the government felt increasingly that it was being subjected to criticism, by which time incidentally Alan Johnson had been replaced by another Secretary of State, uh, that the government started becoming uh, increasingly hostile towards to what we were doing. Uh, and that culminated in uh, the government pretty well rejecting everything that we said uh, at the end. Uh, and um, uh, 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 really quite egregiously misrepresenting what we said too, uh, a, a fact which I know the professional associations were, were extremely angry with. And when you, when, you, when you talk about the media making hay with it, can you give, give us an example of the misrepresentation? Well, um, I, you know, I, I illustrate uh, this in the book with the headlines. Um, where we raised questions about, uh, about standards and the government's wholly proper concern with raising standards, um, we'd get headlines like this, primary tests blasted by expert, too much testing harms primary pupils. The literacy drive has no impact. That was a, 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 a comment on the national literacy strategy, which of course we haven't said. Um, millions wasted on, the, on, on teaching reading, which is an extraordinary thing to say. Political interference is damaging our children's education. And so it went on. Uh, if you look below the headlines, you usually found balanced reports. But the problem is what the sub-editors do with the reports. Uh, and the education correspondents have no control over that. And the government um, was hypersensitive to the headlines. Um, and uh, its re reaction was not to engage with us, but to simply, to simply uh, rubbish us. <laughs> Uh, yeah. rather than to engage with what we were saying, which was... Yes, I think what, what, what struck me re reading the book was how just how thin-skinned a government, which we would have expected to be a bit more confident and robust about what it was doing, uh, was. It's, uh, so that's education in spite of policy. I loved the book. And, and, and there are two particular things that resonated with me. And then I want to come on to your new book, Dialogic Teaching Companion. Um, one of the things that you do in the book is you reaffirm the importance of the teacher's expertise. And there is a sense, and I lived through the National Strategies era as head of English, that what it could seem to do was to suggest that someone in Westminster knew better than you teaching in wherever I was in North Yorkshire about what good teaching looks like and knows better how to structure it. And it, it could feel like a complete sense of disempowerment. And I think what you reinforce is a sense of teachers being critical to this. And I'd like to come back to that. And the second point, which I think is utterly important, is you remind us, and indeed you quote Matthew Arnold from, I can't remember, 1863 or something, that actually good quality literacy and numeracy is about quality not quantity and the key to it is a broad and balanced curriculum could i just ask you to, to reflect on that am, am i saying what's right both in terms of the importance of the teacher but also the importance of a broad balanced curriculum yeah but both of those correct we are uh, uh absolutely i and i am and always have been uh, absolutely convinced that that teacher empowerment and and teacher agency are are fundamental to the quality of education uh, and indeed, one of the most quoted um, uh, sentences from the Cambridge Primary Review, a lot of people have used it, is this. Uh, Children will not learn to think for themselves if their teachers are merely expected to do as they're told. And yet increasingly, uh, from the uh, 19, late 1980s, but certainly through the 1990s and into the into the noughties, uh, we had governments uh, which 
felt that uh, it was their right to tell teachers uh, not only what to teach, the national curriculum, but how to teach. And that was the red line that previous governments had never crossed. And we were trying, uh, we, and, and indeed it's been one of the areas of my work for, 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 for decades really, to, 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 uh, to reinforce teachers' sense of their own agency and uh, their own uh, unique understanding of what goes on in classrooms and, and, and the importance of building that building on that in order to make uh, the appropriate decisions in the classroom. Now, as to broad and balanced curriculum, well, you know, this is a, uh, it, 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 it's a long struggle, this. Um, in the one of the chronologies, which is contained in the final report of the Cambridge Primary Review, uh, we encounter a flurry back in the 80s, and we call it Back to Basics. And then a few years on, we have another one of a new different government. We call it Back to Basics again, and then Back to Basics yet again. It keeps recurring. And Back to Basics is where uh, uh, an incoming minister, determined to make it his, his or her mark, um, says, right, what we've got to do is raise standards um, and uh, conveniently forgetting that, that his predecessor or her predecessor, but one or two, has also uh, ha 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 had the same mission uh, and indeed often from the same party so there's the implication that, that that one's own government has failed but that's that's another matter um and raising standards they see as about focusing almost exclusively on literacy and numeracy now um there have been has, has been a succession reports going back to arnold but also including a conservative white paper of 1985 um, and a succession of HMI and Ofsted reports, uh, which have shown that the schools which do best in literacy and numeracy embed literacy in and numeracy in a, a curriculum which is broad, rich, uh, uh, and uh, uh, well taught and well managed across the piece. And yet, what we have had is a succession of initiatives which have said you raise standards in literacy and numeracy by concentrating on literacy and numeracy to the exclusion of pretty well all else. Perhaps one of the worst examples of this was when after the national literacy and numeracy strategies came in in 1980, 1997 and eight, uh, the then Labour government um, disapplied the national curriculum requirements for all the other subjects and said, uh, that they, they expected schools to have regard for the other subjects, but they needn't worry too much about them. Uh, not only was this denying children the right to the entitlement, which they were entitled to in law, to a broad curriculum, but it was actually shooting themselves in the foot because the evidence, as I've said, including Ofsted evidence, is actually you will get better, higher standards in literacy and numeracy, including in the, in the tests, if you embed them in a broad, rich and well-balanced curriculum. Um, and it doesn't matter how many times I and others have said this, each new government which decides to go for standards in primary education makes the same mistake. And what, one of the uh, defining features of, of your work, um, both, both then but since then, has been a focus on dialogic teaching indeed your, your your book a dialogic teaching uh, companion came out in 2020 Let, let's just talk about this so there will be some people listening who who just don't know the phrase what what do you mean when you talk about dialogic teaching well it's a particular approach to um the uh, handling of talk 
Uh, now, I, I believe and the evidence shows that the quality of classroom talk is supremely important. Um, and uh, I mean, we use talk for different things. We need talk for thinking. We need talk for learning. We need talk for communicating. We need talk for relating to others. We need talk for engaging in a democracy. And of course, teachers need talk for teaching. So uh, it's not just important for pupils, but but the quality of talk matters because it's on the basis of what pupils say that teachers are able to get inside the heads of children. Now, um, I and others, uh, it's it's a, it's a large movement, have have been working on this for 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 some time, and the evidence is very clear that the traditional. Um, recitation mode, as the Americans call it, of closed questions, uh, recall answers and minimal follow up. Uh, it's called recitation teaching or IRE um, is uh, ha ha has limited value and, and, and traction on children's learning. And what is needed is a kind of talk which extends people's thinking through follow up questions uh, by challenging pupils, by probing their understanding, by bringing in other pupils to comment on what they've said and so on. Uh, and uh, which sees talk not so much as a one way process of teaching teach a child with a minimal response from the child, but as a genuine dialogue uh, 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 between teacher and pupil and among pupils themselves. And I've developed a, a, a substantial framework, uh, which I've called dialogic teaching. Um, which uh, has a number of elements to it, um, at, at central to which perhaps are six key principles and the notion of repertoires, the notion that um, teachers can reskill themselves for this or upskill themselves for this by extending the quality of their, uh, of their talk in a number of areas, the way they ask questions, the way they extend patterns of, uh, they extend pupils' responses, uh, the use they make of whole class teaching, group work, individual interaction, the use they make of space of t and time, uh, the use they make of argumentation uh, and discussion. Um, but in the end, this is not one size fits all, but going back to your earlier question about uh, teacher empowerment and agency, only the teacher can decide how this repertoire is used because it's the teacher who knows the situation and the children that he or she is teaching. Uh, this whole approach was subjected at Kevin Collins's invitation to randomized control trial by the Education Endowment Foundation um, in, uh, in a project which ran from 2014 to 2017. And an independent evaluation uh, found that uh, children, it was a huge study, 5,000 pupils in Leeds, Bradford and Birmingham, uh, the, the pupils who had received, whose teachers had received intensive, in, intensive training in dialogic teaching and who were implementing my approach to dialogic teaching, after only 20 weeks, they were uh, up to two months ahead of pupils in the control groups in tests of English, maths and science. Uh, so it really does work, and it works across the curriculum. What I, what I love about it, uh, to speaking as a kind of a veteran English teacher, is that it's not 
some kind of formula or template. It is still about the teacher understanding how you ask questions, when you pause, when you don't respond to a young person, what you might say. I mean, it's it's an, a whole repertoire, isn't it, for the teacher as well as liberating the child to uh, be able to express ideas and then get the response of either other young, young people in the room or of the teacher. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the things which differentiates my approach from others is um, I devote equal attention to the talk of the teacher uh, and the talk, talk of the child. Now, obviously, the talk of the, 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 the pupil, the student, is ultimately the quality of that talk and its capacity and its relationship to thinking and learning and communication and so on. That's our ultimate objective. That's what we are centrally concerned with. But it's the teacher's talk who, which more often than not liberates or sadly inhibits the talk uh, that the, uh, uh, the, the child in, engages in. Um, and uh, so, uh, hence that importance of repertoire, teacher repertoire, professional repertoire. In fact, the repertoires for, 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 for pupils, what are called learning talk, as well as teaching talk, are, 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 are both important. But as I said, and I stress, um, in the end, the teacher has to decide how to use this approach. It's not, as you say, it's not a package which is just implemented as it stands. Indeed, um, uh, the, the very notion of... Of, of, of professional development as implementing packages, which I know some people like, uh, I find uh, absolutely abhorrent. <laughs> so you must you, you must feel somewhat depressed because what, what we have in the kind of tribal world of education at the moment, and particularly if you engage with social media, is, is the view that knowledge is the only thing that's important and that pedagogy is somehow soppy, that the teacher delivering stuff is, is what you do with children as passive recipients. And the idea of, of group work being something which, again, is, is a kind of laziness. Now, I know I'm, I'm caricaturing it, but that sometimes feels like the prevailing narrative. And would, would you go so far as to say that if, if that hypothesis is right, that for us genuinely to improve standards in literacy and numeracy, we will not get there by doing the kind of things which I've just outlined? Uh, I, I, would, <clears throat> I would support that. Hypothesis. And what what is doubly depressing for me, who's someone who's fairly long in the tooth. I mean, I started teaching in a primary school in 1964, which is an awful long time ago. So I've been professionally involved in education for nearly 60 years. What is doubly depressing is the way we keep going round and round and round in circles, um, and uh, you know the back to basics thing, the um, the the focus on literacy and numeracy, which in itself is necessary, but to the exclusion of much or to the detriment of, of much else that is also important. Um, and, indeed, you know, if you look at the uh, the National Curriculum Framework published by DFE, just look at the, com compare the number of pages for Key Stages 1 and 2 devoted to um, uh, English and, and, and maths with the handful of pages allowed for art, music, PE, history, geography, and, 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 and all the other subjects. The message is quite clear. The rest of the curriculum actually doesn't matter very much. Uh, whatever ministers will, will say, and however much they will cite Matthew Arnold's best that has been thought and said, that is not, of course, what Matthew Arnold meant. Let me just ask you a couple of, a couple of other questions, Robin, if you don't mind. One is a very specific one. 
Is, is Ofsted our friend in all of this? Because they talk about a broad and balanced curriculum, but equally there will be some people who will say, well, their notion of a broad and balanced curriculum is pretty formulaic and their way of judging it is pretty formulaic. Um, are, are they doing us a service? Because they are talking a lot about uh, not just not just broad and balanced curriculum, they're putting more emphasis on early years. We saw in a report this this week of them talking about the importance of early years. So what, what what's your instinctive sense of what Ofsted's doing for the education service? Um, whether Ofsted is friend or foe, I, 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 I couldn't judge, I really couldn't. Um, but I do know that broad and balanced curriculum has become a cliche. It, it, it's virtually meaningless. Um, and it seems to me that an inspection regime is serious about breadth and balance if it looks with no less seriousness at the quality of the wider curriculum as it does at the uh, at, at the three core subjects. Um, I mean, we 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 argued that um, uh, you know a curriculum is broad, balanced, and coherent uh, if each subject domain or aspect of that curriculum is planned and taught to a consistently high standard, regardless of how much or little time is allocated. So it's not about time, it's about the quality of commitment and of work and of teacher training. And equally, it's about the seriousness with which Ofsted examines uh, this wider curriculum. And until that happens, uh, the message uh, to teachers will be pretty clear. Concentrate on the basics, the rest doesn't matter. And as I've said, this is not only um, bad for children and their education and the richness of education to which they are entitled, uh, legally and morally, uh, but it's also it's also um, uh, uh, not helpful to the pursuit of of that narrower uh, agenda of raising standards in the basics, because of course there is this relationship which we we, we discussed right at the beginning of this podcast between the wider curriculum and standards in the basics. So. Yep, yep. Let me just ask you about one final area. In, in a dialogic teaching companion, you, you focus in part on international um, comparisons and perspectives. Now, I have to say from both of your books, politicians don't come out of it um, brilliantly. But one of the things they tend to do is what I think Dylan William calls policy tourism. That is, they pick and choose things that they think work in the, the Shanghai's or the Singapore's of this world. What, it, is the, is the notion of looking at the PISA tables, you, do, doing international comparison, is, is that ultimately helpful or, or does it lead to the kind of gimmickry that sometimes we've we've seen? Of course, it, of course it's helpful. It, it's, the problem is not PISA, it's what people do with PISA. Um, and um, again, we've had a, a succession of governments which have taken the view um, that uh, if you want to uh, catch up with those countries which do well in PISA. You 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 copy their you copy their policies, um, and, uh, and 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 very often what happens then is you is you actually you you actually get it wrong. So if if I can be less controversial, if I can move away from the present time, uh, there was a phase when uh, uh, secretaries of state were. Um, Commending something called interactive whole class teaching on on the basis that the high performers in in PISA and TIMS um, used uh, uh, that pattern of teaching in their classrooms. Now, of course, what what what, what uh, 
they then did was say, well, what we need to do is move back towards much more whole class teaching. Forget the individual work, forget the group work. It's whole class teaching that does the trick. Actually, if they'd looked at the evidence properly, it was not the whole class teaching which was making the difference, but the quality of the, the interaction, interactive whole class teaching, the focus on the quality of the interaction back to dialogic teaching. And uh, so um, where research can help, I think, in, in international comparisons is uh, looking in much greater depth at what lies behind um, the uh, quality of attainment achieved in uh, the international tests like like like, like PISA. Um, now, I've done quite a lot of work. I did a huge project um, in the 1990s working in Russia, very different Russia then to Russia today, sadly. Uh, India, France, United States uh, and England uh, using interview, videotape, talking to policymakers, talking to teachers and others. Um, and uh, I've worked in other countries too and have found observing in classrooms elsewhere really is very illuminating indeed. But the way one applies the lessons of that is not to copy the practices, but to try and understand the principles which underlie the practices. And if you work from the principles, then you can learn and apply something from uh, from international comparisons. If you merely copy a practice that you see in a school in Shanghai, it won't work. Robin, I know I said that was the last question. I'm going to ask, ask you one more curveball question. We've got a, a white paper, which is a moment for a government to say, here's what here's what we've done, here's where we're going next. And the current white paper says by 2030, there's various things they're going to do. Yeah. If you were giving advice on one thing which a Secretary of State really should be focusing on, what, what would it be? Either doing or not doing? Well, in the present climate, the Secretaries of State need, need to realise that we are in truly exceptional circumstances. Um, uh, there's the matter of COVID recovery and there's the matter with which the new book, Education in Spite of Policy, begins, which is the failure of the government to act on Kevin Collins's advice on what was needed for COVID recovery. Um, and uh, schools need to be given um, every means possible to help them uh, to uh, to, 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 to get children to recover some of the ground they've lost. Um, and incidentally, that ground should be conceived as broadly as possible. Only today there's a piece in The Guardian about from a teacher who, who sadly has to uh, call herself anonymous, talking about uh, the ground that children have lost uh, socially in terms of communication, in terms of a whole range of, uh, of, of, of personal and social skills and how supremely important recovery in this area is alongside uh, the recovery in, in, uh, in, in attainment, which of course is, is also important. Um, I, in terms of advice secretaries of state, I wouldn't be uh, presumptuous to offer, offer them, particularly as I'm now retired and I don't engage with, with policymakers as much as I did. But I suppose I would say is if there is money and support available, uh, then uh, rather than uh, in, invest it in um, schemes like 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 uh, outsource schemes on tutoring and such like, I would direct it straight to the schools because I think the schools know uh, what they need. They know the nature of that shortfall and it varies from one school and one child 
to another and it's at school level the support is needed and to hold back on new initiatives we've had enough of new initiatives um, I mean one of the points I make in the in, in the new book I, I mentioned that during my um, professional life in education I've seen 27 secretaries of state come and go and very few of them have stayed more than two years a handful have stayed for four um, David Blunkett, Michael Gove, Margaret Thatcher um, and, and one or two others uh, but some have gone after only a couple of months but each of them especially those who don't stay long feels that they've got to make their mark um, I call it a dog at a lamppost tendency I'm afraid a bit rudely um, <laughs> and, and, and making their mark consists of coming up with some supposedly tough new initiative which will raise standards because that's that you know that attracts the tabloid press it attracts uh, they, they think it it, 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 it attracts the electorate. Uh, and what then happens, because they're there for such a short space of time, they pin everything on this. Uh, effectively, um, um, the previous policy of their predecessor uh, is, is sidelined or, or, or disregarded. And, and schools are in this uh, this roller coaster uh, of, of uh, policy initiative after policy initiative. I mean, I say um, it's an endless, I'm quoting, an endless parade of careerist and sometimes contradictory initiatives that's hardly a basis for considered cumulative and coherent policy or for the development of a properly functioning national education system. And so the, a mature Secretary of State, a Secretary of State who understood the nature of education uh, and education development and educational progress would actually go easy on the new initiatives, would concentrate on giving teachers as much support as he or she possibly could, and would avoid the gimmicks. Robin Alexander, that's been a, a superb, fascinating conversation. Thank, thank you. And on behalf of the people I represent, school and college leaders, but also indeed primary teachers and teaching assistants and primary children themselves, your, your work is an inspiration. Thank you so much for your time. The Askell Leadership Podcast.